Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Stephanie. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I were just talking about, before I hit the record button, the fact that you and I have been able to develop a a friendship uh, without, over the last probably 12 months or so, maybe even longer, maybe 18 months um, I remember very specifically when we met, as do I'm sure you, um, and uh, it was in a virtual space. And uh, that's what I think a lot of us, especially since the pandemic, have been taking advantage of is figuring out how to get to know each other uh, in these virtual spaces. So I'm delighted that you're here with me today. Um, we're going to dive into a good conversation. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, it's it's at the end of my day. I've got my evening coffee here in hand and I'm looking forward to kind of wrapping up the day. My wife's making dinner uh, that is that I will be eagerly awaiting after we're done with the conversation. So, Stephanie, before we dive in, how about you just uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Jason. And I'm really excited to have the chance to talk with you again. Um, I'm going to introduce myself with, I think, a couple of points that are probably going to be particularly relevant to this conversation. And that's to just let everyone know. Um, like Jason said, my name is Stephanie. Um, I have been a fundraiser for over 10 years now, and I identify as a member of the elder millennial generation. Um, okay. So I've just turned 38 years old, and I think that is a, an important point of context for people. Um, so I have a strong background in annual giving fundraising. I used to work at higher education institutions all over the world. Um, and I have recently returned back to the U.S. 
where I have my first in-person meeting with donors fundraising role uh, for a wonderful arts organization here in Phoenix, Arizona. I love it. You're going, you're moving into a uh, donor facing role, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. I, my first time. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. So, so Stephanie, the first time you and I probably had this, again, I don't remember if it was a, uh, like a, like a, like this type of conversation or if it was a conversation on social media or whatever. But Stephanie, I very, very much remember the energy that you described to me. You had got, please tell this story real quickly. Quickly, so this is the organization I think you were working for in New Zealand, and you had gotten a card, you'd received a card, and this card mm-hmm. just as you were describing it to me, I was like, "Damn, this 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 woman has got to be in front of donors." You, the the energy with which you sort of the way you described it, I was like, "That's great, I understand." You're swapping thank you cards. But there was just so much energy in it. Do you remember telling me that story? I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because we first got to talking because uh, you made some comments about annual giving being kind of like the bottom of the barrel of (laughs) life fulfillment in our sector. And as an annual giving specialist, I I took that very personally. Um, Yes, I So yeah, what what I was trying to do is I was trying to explain to you, you know, the value of annual giving and how it can be a very fulfilling career path for a lot of people. And if you're doing it well and you're good at it, then there are moments in that for genuine connection with donors. And so, yes, I I read to you a very heartfelt um, message that I'd received from a donor after um, one of those, you know, regular stewardship communications that, that I would do in that role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and my argument, and you've heard my argument more more than once by now, that 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 you can only sort of go around that loop by getting that card and sort of engaging in the way that you were so many times before our sort of high relational sort of nature that oftentimes fundraisers tend to have before you sort of start to look for a donor facing role like you're in. So I'm delighted that you're uh, you're in that role, Stephanie. Uh, but before, the, the other thing I want to ask you, I want to uh, afford you the opportunity to talk a little bit about. So you spent, clarify for, for myself and my listeners. So you're an American who went to New Zealand to raise money and you've come back to the States. But what was fundraising? Was, was it different down there, over there, out there, <laughs> way out there? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I was, I did go to New Zealand to do a fundraising role at a university. Um, and I got that yeah. because I had also been doing fundraising roles at universities in Scotland. Um, yes. And that's where I started my fundraising career. So this job that I have now is actually my first time fundraising in the United States. In the U.S. Um, But I would say, yeah, in general, you know, fundraising for universities is kind of the same the world over. A lot of the the things that people are doing, the conversations that people are having, it's very translatable to here in the U.S. Um, I would just kind of preface that with it's a lot more difficult in other countries where they don't have this same alumni culture that we have developed in the United States. I mean, I went to college in the United States. I remember people talking about the importance of being an alumnus and giving back from the time that you went on the tour of the university. Um, so other other countries don't really have that same kind of culture, but the things that people are trying to achieve through higher education fundraising are the same. 
Cool. Cool. So Stephanie, usually we give our uh, guests the privilege of, uh, of coming with a big idea or bold opinion, but you and I were having a, a, a regular conversation as we've had uh, on uh, on social media last week. And I said, oh, we've got to carry that. To, we, we were talking about the idea that there's perhaps a handful of reasons why fundraisers, um, this was in response to an, a comment that I had made on social about the idea that fundraisers don't stick around very long. And, uh, and I get, and, and I suggested to you that there is probably a handful of, a uh, handful of, reasons that would keep you in your job uh, long-term. I think we use the number two years. What would keep you in your job two years? And I guessed that the first one for you would probably be that the work, as long as you could characterize the work as meaningful work, that that would be accurate. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So I think that's that's part of the reason why I thought that I needed to introduce myself as someone in the millennial generation, because that's yeah. a big thing that you will read about in trends of people yes. my age and what we're looking for in work. And so, yes, uh, meaningful work and the opportunity to make a difference is a big one. Um, and I would say that that's probably true for all fundraisers. People become fundraisers because we care about things and we care about other people, other causes. We care about making a difference in the world. So I think that that is definitely a given and it's definitely a huge thing that is going to help to keep a fundraiser in their role for longer than two years. Or I think the average is 18 months is the is kind of the high turnover milestone that we worry about in our sector. So that's definitely one. But I'm going to do something that is a bit counterintuitive to fundraisers because, you know, this is our job. But a lot of times we can't talk about it when it comes to our own lives and our own needs. And I'm really going to put it out there that money is the number one thing and also kind of the number one thing that your employer has control over. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so if, if meaningful work, so you and I exchanged that message and, 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 and we said, um, I think I guess that there would probably be two or three. You said, Oh, there's just two. And, and it's sort of this balance as you're saying that it's this balance between money and meaningful work. And, um, and, and one of the things I said in our, in our exchange was the idea that you, we, you weren't going to be able to talk about this unless you talked about it with your boss. So my first question is, does your boss understand that? Does your boss under your new boss, because you haven't been there very long, your new mm-hmm. boss understand that essentially the relationship that in order to keep Stephanie in her seat, in her job for at least two years, which would exceed the, the average that we're constantly in this sector sort of complaining about is going to be this balance between Money and meaning. Does does she get that? He or she? I don't know who it is. Yeah, they? she. Um, and yeah, and I, I don't want to get too personally specific about this because sure. there are like very general lessons that I think everyone can learn from this conversation. So what I will say is that, yes, right now, um, obviously, I wouldn't have taken the job if I didn't feel that my needs were going to be met financially in that moment. However... Yeah. Your relationship with your employer, like any other relationship in this life, 
takes work. It, you have to work at it. It has to be maintained. And if it's going to continue over a long period of time, um, you know, both parties can't assume that the needs that were met on the day that the offer was extended and, ex- and accepted are going to be the same needs throughout that yeah. entire relationship. Yeah. So, so without critiquing uh, the organizations and without critiquing sort of the, even the timelines w- with your previous jobs, because you've worked in a couple of places, was your movements from one job to another up until this point, were they primarily because of the lack of meaning or because of the lack of, or the, you know, w- which one of those, A or B, money or meaning, was sort of most, w- which one of those was the bigger problem? Yeah, well, I mean, I think on either of those, they can only sustain you for so long. So we are human beings. We're constantly growing and evolving in our yeah. in our lives and in our jobs. And so, like I was saying, if it's something could be great at the start of the relationship, but as it continues, maybe things are different. Maybe there's things that you didn't realize when you first accepted accepted the job. So um, over time, those needs can maybe discontinue being met. People will leave. Other people will come. If the work is not interesting enough to kind of sustain you over that period, it's, I mean, again, it's, it's a balance of both. Um, I will say that something that is common across all sectors on the planet of employment, not just fundraising, um, yeah. is the way that we increase people's pay over time. I mean, this is a pretty standard statistic. I think in the U.S. specifically, the average pay increase, if you stay at your current employer, is about 3% year on year. But yeah. the average increase that you can get if you change your job, then it starts to go way up from about 10 to 30%. So if you're, you know, a young, ambitious person or even just a person who is interested in being able to afford things in your life, like a house or children or an emergency fund, even, you're going to be looking at those things that you can do. And this sort of current system that we have inbuilt with annual performance appraisals and these 3% limits, I mean, that's just not meeting the needs. Um, when I was working overseas, they have unions for higher education employees. And the things that the unions were always talking about is this concept of a real terms pay cut. And what that means is if your institution can only budget for a 3% or less salary increase every year, but inflation or the cost of living is going up 8%, you're actually taking a 5% pay cut to continue working in that job. And so that's what they call a real terms pay cut. Okay. So let's, I want to come back to money, but I want to start. I want to, I really want to unravel both of these because uh, one of the things that I have consistently said to both clients and to my listeners, I've oftentimes said that I don't think fundraising has a, as a fundraiser problem, I think we have a supervisory problem in many cases because I don't think fundraise, I don't think the supervisors are necessarily thinking this stuff through. And I've got some pretty potent thoughts that I think you and I could sort of wrestle around with on the, on the compensation issue. But when you say meaningful work and you, you qualified it with, you know, that you're, 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 you're a millennial, an older millennial and that, uh, and that that matters a lot. And I, I've even got probably a couple of books here behind me somewhere. 
um, on this, you know, on this notion of meaningful work, because I don't know that, for example, my parents' generation, I don't know that they were all terribly worried about it. And the previous, you know, my grandfather, my grandparents' generation, you know, I don't know how many, how much they were worried about it. But this notion of meaningful work is a big deal, which is, which is one of the reasons why it's one of your two. What, what does that even mean? What is meaningful work? Yeah, even so- so for me, meaningful work, it can be, it's a combination of sort of the, the tasks that you're doing in your work and also the work environment in which you are operating. So I'm going to throw into meaningful work, also having a positive work environment. Yeah, and yeah. So things like, do people eat well? And that's your boss and your colleagues and your volunteers and your donors. Is this a, like a positive, non-toxic work culture? In terms of the tasks, it's not really so much a question of what those tasks are. You know, is it annual giving? Is it getting in front of donors? But it's a feeling of, is that work making a difference to the mission? Am I progressing towards goals? And did I have a say in what those goals were in the first place? Or did I just get Mm -hmm. handed a bunch of numbers and figures and told to go do those things and then also not get any support in, in doing it. Um, you know, I've come out of the higher education backgrounds and I, and towards the end of that, I was feeling a little bit burnt out about it because I felt like I've been spending a decade of my life trying to make it more affordable for kids to go to college and tuition is more expensive than ever. And I was feeling really like down on myself about that. So I think that, you know, when we talk about meaningful work, we talk about, do you feel like you're contributing to the problem or to solving the problem that your organization says that that is what their mission is? You know, that's a very, that's interesting. Um, A couple, I don't know, a couple of months ago, as I notoriously do, I posted something somewhat antagonistic towards our, in this particular case, towards our friends in higher education. And I got some comments from people in higher education that were like, well, why? Because I basically was very forthright about the fact that I don't give to my alma mater. I don't really have any interest to. Um, it's an institution that has, let's say, just say, let's just very, very safely just say they've completely shamed themselves as an institution. I don't really live in that world anymore. But but all that to say that people were somewhat surprised that I was so forthright about the fact that I don't send a I don't routinely send a check to my to to you know where I graduated from. And um that college I I I'm actively involved and have contributed at the at the graduate school level. But um you know, why does that sort of unsettle people? Why, why the reaction? Why, you know, some, as somebody who has thought through the way you have, um, why is that reaction perhaps the way that it was from the, from the, these folks that were surprised that I wasn't giving to higher ed? Cause, cause I was sort of wrestle. I think in some ways I wrestle with so, the same sort of thing that, you know, I could send you guys a hundred bucks, hundred bucks a month, but, Shoot, higher education, the cost of education, and the way the whole system's working—you know, I, my hundred dollars mm-hmm. can go go in much better places, in much more effective sort of ways, in other in other places. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, and I think the reason that people reacted that way to you is because you are working as a fundraiser. I mean, no one would give you a hard time for not supporting your alma mater 
if you did anything else in your life for a job. But it's because we're fundraisers and we're supposed to we're supposed to support the cause. But I mean, I, I agree. I, I do not support the institution that I did my undergraduate degree at. Um, yeah. And partly because I work as a fundraiser. So I see the communications that I get from them and yeah. I am not impressed and I do not want to reward bad fundraising behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that was that, that you're, you're, you're right. And, and there's a, um, but, but, but it just, and, and, and to kind of, and that, that's almost like a lead into the idea of sort of this, this notion of compensation, um, you know, Fundraisers are not notoriously the, the, the best paid individuals and nonprofit employees, regardless of what type of institution they work for. They're usually not making big bucks. And so consequently, you know, being generous, um, I, I think fundraisers tend to be very compassionate and very, um, big picture, very much aware sort of types. I mean, we know where, we know where things are right and wrong and, and, and we can't, so we can't support everything, right? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and let's let's talk about that though. The this um, kind of acceptance that we know we work in nonprofit, we know we're not going to okay. make the big yeah. bucks. I, yeah, that's, okay. that's okay. That's um, okay. I'm not expecting nonprofit organizations to be able to give everyone in the organization a six figure salary. But let's let's be honest about a fair wage and an equitable wage. And making sure that the people that work for our organization are not feeling so insecure financially that they cannot bring them best, their best selves to work. I mean, do you really want your employees to be worrying about how they're going to pay their bills, if they're drowning in debt or not, if they're having to make decisions between eating and turning on the heating in the wintertime, things like that? Yes, we know we work in nonprofit, but it doesn't mean no profit. We have to have some kind of standard of what a livable working wage is. And when you can meet that need for your people, then they are going to bring their best ideas and their best self to their work. Yeah, I started to, we had this conversation here on the podcast, I don't know, a couple dozen uh, episodes back with Christy, Christy is her name. Um, and I, I think I described and perhaps higher education isn't the nest isn't the the most helpful sort of point of reference for the um for the for the argument but a lot of the the parachurch organizations small parachurch organizations that I started my started my fundraising career with would not have would not exist today if people did not essentially uh what what some academics called donative labor, the idea that we sort of volunteer and donate a portion of our, we forego some of our wages. And I think that's what some of the nonprofits, as the, as the nonprofit, this is my, my students and I talk about this in my class at the college, as, as, as organizations sort of mature, they move, they become more professionalized and consequently the expectations of sort of these su subsequent generations of employees, as you're describing, expect more what we might call competitive wages, but those early generations would literally work for next to nothing. Um, and, and a lot of the organ, and, and, and I think some of the people who are sort of beating this drum 
are missing some of that life cycle awareness. You follow what I'm saying? It's it's this idea that I I get that we need to pay living wages or competitive wages and people need to be able to, you know, pay their bills. But at the same time, the history of your organ, are you really aware of the fact that the history of your organization required that there were perhaps multiple generations of people that literally volunteered their time because there was just nothing there to get started. Right. Um, mm. I mean, the, 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 the school that I worked for here, here in my local community, I was the first employee that they hired in what we might call a sort of a traditional sort of search process. I, you know, when they hired me as their chief development officer, I was the most, you know, I was 10 years younger than the, than the, than the, uh, the next highest paid employee on the payroll. Um, just because they sort of had to grow up, if you will, you know what, you follow what I'm saying? I, I was sort of one of those turning points. Yeah. Sorry. The audience can't hear me shaking my head as you're talking <laughs> and I'm agreeing, <laughs> agreeing with what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, definitely. So these are, this is kind of the world in which some nonprofits are operating, especially when there is, you know, if, if there's such like a local human service driven need that they are trying yeah. to address this reliance on, on volunteers um, is, yeah, that's kind of how some things have to start out, but we need to be thinking about ourselves as organizations in terms of growing up and becoming a business. Or if we're starting these kinds of organizations in the first place, if you want to start a nonprofit and you know, you can't afford to pay anyone are you really doing something that's so niche and unique that you have to start your own organization or is there yeah. a similar organization out there that you should be aligning your energy and your, and your funding with to make sure that that mission is achieved. Um, and, and there's, you know, it's not. That, uh, the one, one that, you know, you've gotten your head wrapped around these three lanes that we teach at responsive. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, one of the things that I like to point out now that you've gotten your head wrapped around, it, if you think about from a compensation standpoint, you think about the small grassroots organization, the fundraiser who exists in lane one, there's not enough margin playing out in that particular lane to compensate that, that person well. And so along the line, so if you look at our models, for example, we, the, the lane one, in that small shop begins with a, what we call a high capacity volunteer. And so what I want, which makes, you know, so, you know, the, the idea when you reached out to me and said, Hey, I've, I'm in this job and I'm going to be doing quote unquote lane to work. I want to say to your boss, you sure as hell better know how much she, she, you know, she, her expectations are in terms of compensation, because once she starts taking people out to lunch, her value is extraordinary not just in the near term, but in the long term, you know, one of the questions, you know, if I was sitting here with you and your boss, I would be asking you, for example, and this is sort of a transition to the compensation question. Stephanie, I'm not nearly as, if you're doing what we call lane to work, I'm not nearly as concerned about how much you're being compensated today or how much you're even getting compensated 12 months from now. But I want to know if, if, if they're going to be able to meet your expectations in three years. Because that's when your value as a quote unquote lane two fundraiser just like takes off. It just goes, it's a, you know, your, your opportunities and, and knowing you as well as I think I do now, um, you're going to be raising some, uh, you might be raising some serious cash in year three. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, here's hoping that would that would be the plan definitely. <laughs> and I know that I know that um, my boss and and other people who are in charge of these kind of big decisions at work are are definitely hoping that that will be the case. And they definitely understand that fundraising is a business that takes time. Um, So that's, again, another reason why I was very excited to take this role is that the expectations about the timeline of this sort of thing were very reasonable. Um, So, yeah, but I think it's important that, you know, I can have this conversation with you because I've gotten to this stage in my career. I've been through enough terrible work situations that I've got a bit of life experience to talk about it now. And I just think that it's really important to have these conversations out in the open because people, not everyone knows about what they can stand up for in terms of their compensation and their benefits with their employer. I mean, when I was first starting out my job search, I had no idea what a reasonable salary was. You know, I I was raised by baby boomer parents who thought it was totally inappropriate to ever talk about money for right, any reason right. so much to the to the point where you know I just I had no idea about like what jobs paid what salary so if someone's offering me a salary I'm like yeah great money that sounds fine um but you know now we have tools like we have Glassdoor we have show the salary campaigns people are able to get more information to be able to advocate for themselves and I just think that these these conversations and this thought process about your value in the workplace needs to be start from the beginning of your career and needs to be reinforced all the way throughout it. So that's that's kind of one of the reasons that I thought it was really important to talk to you about this on your podcast. See, okay, so Stephanie, if you think about some of the keywords that you've used and you think about it through the, through the lens of the three lanes and you think about it through the lens of sort of what you understand about yourself and your expectations – you use the word, um, uh, I think you use the word, um, the, the, the idea that sort of these, uh, oh gosh, it, 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 did you use the word incremental? Sort of that, maybe the word, that's the wrong word, but the, the, the idea that, that the growth, the growth in lane one fundraising typically is just very incremental in the sense that you, you might get three to five to 10% out of it every year. You're just, it's just going to sort of, it's not, it's not, um, it's not an exponential sort of growth curve, if you will. You follow me? And so what what I think, I remember negotiating with a, uh, with an employer for somebody that we were placing once, and we said, look, I don't want you to think about how much you're going to pay this gentleman in year one. I want you to commit to what you're going to pay this person in year three. And part of what we were doing there, Stephanie, is we were trying to get them to see that long-term orientation that you're describing. The fact that they're not going to shoot. These people don't even pay for themselves in the first year because they're just warming up, as we call it, warming up these relationships. But in year three, if you know and understand what Stephanie's expectations are, we can perhaps keep Stephanie around for far longer than the average. And we can also ensure that she's building meaningful relationships with these donors of the sort, like you described with the, mm-hmm. you know, with the woman who sent you that card. Um, and that is, I mean, that's a great approach and a great way for you to be coaching employers, Jason, because not only are you getting them to think about 
the incremental increases in what it's going to cost to keep that person employed over that three-year period, then that's opening up a conversation about, well, what is the growth of that person in this role going to be? over that period so many times you know an employer writes a job description and they get someone in to do a role and they're they just have this mindset of well i need someone who's already an expert at this specific thing to be satisfied doing this specific thing for the exact same salary for the next 10 years because i can't be bothered teaching anyone how to do it or managing anyone wanting to learn a new skill or grow in any sort of way professionally. So I think that, I mean, that is the important thing as well. We need to think about roles in our organizations and people in our organizations as people that are going to grow and roles that are going to grow over time and get rid of this idea that everybody has to be an expert right now. And the goal is to, reduce turnover through this strategy of just expecting people to stay the same for long periods of time. Now you left higher education. Am I right? You're not in higher higher ed now, right? That is correct. Yeah. Because uh, does it make sense to you that one of the, one of the observations I've made is that in higher education and in healthcare, we have this exaggerated sense of what, what I, what we call this lane to this messy middle sort of fun. You know, I, I, I think it's complete bullshit what we think the person has to look like to be qualified to do lane two fundraising. I think you need to be somebody like yourself who can pick up the phone and respond to that greeting card like you exchanged with the, with, uh, with the woman say thank you and, and agree to go to lunch. It wouldn't be any different than you. And you would have a conversation that's not a whole lot different than the conversation you and I are having here. And I think we've gotten this exaggerated. Uh, and I think, and I would point directly at higher education and healthcare for doing this. We have this exaggerated sense of what a lane to quote unquote major gifts officer type person looks like. And then we, and the other thing is, is we attach words like major gifts in front of that. You know, do you put the word in front of major gifts in front of your job description, for example, and you're expected to always come back to the office with a $10,000 check? And you know, as well as I do, that doesn't always happen. And, uh, I think that, uh, that's the, yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I've, I've, you know, witnessed a lot of major gifts fundraisers come and go. And I've seen what uh, the decision makers thought would make a good fit in that role. And that's the kind of thing that, I mean, that leads to that 18 month turnover, that kind of expectation of someone who's going to come with all their connections already. Yes, right. Exactly what you said, come back from every meeting with a $10,000 check. I mean, also in A lot of not in the institutions that I worked in, because we always were small development shops, but particularly large development shops in higher education and healthcare, where they have the team structures to be able to develop people, have that be part of your part of your organization. We're going to take someone in at 20 years old or whatever, someone who's new to this industry, and we're going to have them journey through their career progression in our organization. We're going to provide opportunities for them to learn things on the job. I mean, that's what fundraising is. It's learning on the job. I think there's maybe about three universities on the planet where you can study 
how to do fundraising as sort of a degree level thing. I mean, all the rest of us, we learned it on the job. So let's, you know, let's talk about having long-term relationships with our employees and kind of maintaining institutional knowledge and that sort of development. And that's going to be the kind of stuff that will bring you success in in donor meetings. You need someone who's going to be able to talk about your organization and the stuff that you do. And if you're hiring a new person every 18 months to go have those conversations, I mean, what are what are they really going to have to say about what it is that you do? Yeah, the other thing that I think you and I'm, I, again, I, I, re- I remember us exchanging messages in this thread um, of online communication. But the, the the other thing that we have we have recommended to boards, Stephanie, is the idea of what are called longevity bonuses. And it's the idea that there's an incentive, there's a bonus, there's a compensation for the fact that you stick around. So, for example, we worked with a client. Uh, this is a number of years ago. I was working with a client who had worked very closely with me, learning how to raise money, learning how to engage with donors, learning how to externalize his role. He was the CEO. And as we were getting to the point, as he and the board were getting to the place where they needed to renegotiate his contract, we came to the place where we said, look, we're going to, I mean, he's five years in um, and he's going to be extraordinary. He's already now extraordinarily more valuable to us than he was when he started on day one, five years ago. And he's going to be all the more valuable to us when he gets to year 10, which is what he's creeping up on right now. Um, and so we built in what was called a longevity bonus. So it was the idea, this, this is not near, and I think there's some per- performance incentives built into his contract as well in terms of the actual dollars raised. But what we're talking about here is the idea that Stephanie, look, if you're ju- just, just the fact that you're there, you're at the end of year one, at the end of year two, at the end of year three, um, as I understand it, some some organizations use these bonuses as a way to ensure that, um, you know, senior executives, top fundraisers don't leave in the midst of capital campaigns. But 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 I think it could become standard practice for, you know, the average Joe or Jane, you know, fundraiser and like an individual like yourself who's in a role that that says, look, we want to keep Stephanie around for 10 years and let's incentivize her to do that by giving her sort of this bonus just to stick around. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I, I think an employment contract in general, bonus or no, is a good incentive yeah. for an employee to stick around. I mean, that, that was something that was slightly terrifying to me about moving back to the United States was this idea that I was kind of willingly going back into this at-will employment environment. Yeah. This is not a thing that exists outside of the United States for all the listeners who don't know. Every job that I worked at overseas, I had an employment contract that listed, you know, my employer's obligations to me, my obligations to my employer. And in more than one case, um, part of my employment contract was a three-month notice period so that when it was time for me to leave, the organization would be able to work on getting a replacement and not having that gap in the role. Now, did the organization always take advantage of that notice period? Not always, but the idea behind it is to protect the organization from having massive gaps in their fundraising programs. 
Yeah, Stephanie, this has been a fascinating conversation. We only hold on to our listeners for about 40 minutes. So we're kind of, we're creeping up on that. Um, I, I, one of the things I want to, I, I like to ask individuals who like yourself, describe yourself as you're about 10 years in. Actually, it, it was the, it was the 10 year veteran fundraiser that I was writing the first book too. But one of the questions I oftentimes, uh, uh, I like to ask the person who's sort of in your seat, who's 10 years in, what is the thing that you're saying in light of today's conversation to that person that you're meeting at the AFP meeting next week that literally is at the beginning of their career? What do you, what are you saying to him or her as it relates to perhaps the conversation we just had? Well, you know, this is a lesson that I I learned earlier in my career that I think is definitely worth passing on. And that's that nobody is going to care more about your success in your career than you. So you have to be your first champion, first of all. The second thing I would say is that in the main, fundraising is a very generous profession, not just in terms of the money that we raise or that we give of ourselves to our organizations, but the time that we give to each other to make sure that this is a worthwhile profession and that people can grow and develop and we look out for each other. So look after yourself first. And then when you think you're doing okay, look out for your fellow fundraisers as well. It's an incredibly rewarding and collaborative field um, and only the best people get to be fundraisers. Oh, that's deep, Stephanie. So Stephanie, I get the privilege. I think this is broadcasting like episode like 330. And I always get the privilege of sort of listening to the language. I don't think I've had anyone ever describe fundraising as a generous, I've I've had them describe fundraising in great sort of noble sort of, complimentary sort of ways. But that's a very interesting way to describe that. It's a generous profession. Um, before we go, unravel that a little bit more. And, and then I would encourage you to own that because that's, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that, a generous profession. What does that mean? Yeah, well, I mean, take the the, the conference format of professional development that we were yeah. talking about, I think, before we started clicking record. I mean, what, what other business or sector, would you go to a conference, everybody's sharing their ideas about this is what we did. This is how we did it. It worked. It didn't work. And for the whole point of that exercise, for you to be able to take those ideas and try to implement them yourselves, you know, all of the electric car companies are not getting together and sharing trade secrets about how everybody can make the best electric car in the world. They're keeping that information to themselves. And as fundraisers, we don't do that. We want everybody to be able to be the most successful in their work that they can be. Yeah, that's a pretty profound way to wrap up. Stephanie, it has certainly been a pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast today. I think the first time we recorded a conversation, all the ranting that we did back and forth uh, we decided not to air it, so this one's definitely gonna uh, gonna air here in August. Uh, it has certainly been a pleasure. Uh, before we uh, stop the re- hit the stop button on the record, can you just tell people uh, how if if somebody's interested in following up with you and they want to continue the conversation with you, perhaps they're sort of balancing this idea between money and meaning, uh, between compensation and having meaningful work. How would you suggest that they do that? Sure. Yeah. The best place to get in touch with me is on LinkedIn. Just search for Stephanie Miller, 
in Phoenix, Arizona. I think the tagline on my profile is people first fundraiser. So if you have a look for me on LinkedIn, I'm very happy to connect with anyone at any stage of their fundraising career and, and have these kinds of conversations. It's been a pleasure, Stephanie. You're always welcome back. Thanks, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.